Tuesday and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I am Charlie Sykes, new CNN poll out, reiterating what we've already known, that the summer of 2022 is a season of deepening and widespread discontent, according to this new CNN poll conducted by SSRS. Survey finds the public's outlook on the state of the country the worst it's been since 2009, while its view on the economy is the worst since 2011, and nearly 7 in 10 say President Joe Biden hasn't paid enough attention to the nation's most pressing problems. We will talk about that, obviously. Big week for the January 6th committee, which is also uh, announcing that it's not done yet, that in fact it's getting so much new information that might be extending the schedule. So we'll talk about that with our guest today, a very, very busy man, the former chairman of the RNC, but don't blame him for any of this, the former lieutenant governor of the state of Maryland, Michael Steele. Good to have you back on, Mr. Chairman. It's good to be back with you, Charlie, always, buddy. I'm ready. Let's lock and load this. So <laughs> the chairman of the January 6th committee, uh, Benny Thompson, just announced that he's tested positive for COVID. It's not going to change the schedule of the hearings, but it feels like everybody Everybody in the world is 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 coming down with it. Have you gotten COVID? No, we no? have uh, not. <laughs> knock on wood here. Knock, yeah, knock on lots here. of wood. Yeah. yeah. No, we we have been blessed in my immediate family with uh, having avoided COVID. We've been very cautious. Yeah. My wife still limits uh, her public access. She doesn't go out a lot, um, and when she does, she has her mask on. I still wear my mask when appropriate, um, doing more larger events, you know, but we've had, oh my gosh, I think I've had uh, four boosters now. <laughs> my sister's a doctor, so I can't, I can't get away from them. And because we care for our elderly parents, uh, both of whom, uh, 91 and 96, have avoided yeah. COVID. So we've been very blessed and cautious, but it's there. It's real. It's still very much a part of our lives, Charlie, as you know, and I think, you know, a lot of Americans in the rush out of frustration and other anxieties wanting to get back into, you know, the full-throated activities that they had pre-COVID, you know, let our guards down a little bit and it, it's coming back in, you know, a mutated form and we're going to have to deal with it. I think it will, it's endemic. It will be with yeah. us. It will be like the flu every year. You got to get a COVID shot if you don't want to get COVID. You no, know? I, I, I think you're right. I mean, it's, it is a bizarre sort of split screen where, as you point out, I mean, I think everybody has just sort of given up on this, that there's kind of a consensus that we're, we're moving on. On the other hand, we're getting the reports that this version is not necessarily as mild as I think we'd like to tell ourselves that the people that are coming down with it are very sick. The good news is that the vast majority not hospitalized death rate has been held in check by the boosters, but... It's hanging over our head. It's one of those things that, you know, you make a list of, you know, why people think the country's on the wrong track. That may not be in the top three or four or five, but it's right. It it is it is there. Okay, so well, before we get into stuff, uh, there's a primary. Is the is the Maryland primary today? Yes, it is. Uh, we are all the way live in our primary. I voted, and uh, it's going to be a very dynamic turn of events here in Maryland because. Larry Hogan, the incumbent Republican governor, is term limited out after his second term. Uh, very popular, sitting at 70-plus approval still to this day among voters here in Maryland, Democrat and Republican. He's running about 80% among Republicans, Amazing. about 72% among Democrats' approval. And, and, um, and, and very critical of Trump. I mean, very much yeah. a, a never-Trump figure. 
very much a never Trump figure going all the way back to 2015 when Trump was invited to Maryland before, um, I think shortly before he even announced his intention, probably six or so months before he announced his intentions to run. He did an event here in Maryland and, and Larry Hogan refused to attend the event. So, that, you know, so it's longstanding reservations, put it that way, about uh, Donald Trump and his leadership uh, by Larry Hogan. Uh, it has not hurt him. It has kept him in good stead with voters here in the state. There are some, obviously, Trump Republicans here who can't stand him because he doesn't like Trump. That's the only reason they don't like him. But the reality of it is he's he's weathered that well and, and is now poised to probably launch at least a, a looky-loo at a presidential bid in, in 24. But our primary is underway. We've got, um, you know, two candidates running in the Republican primary. One is a Trump-endorsed candidate. One is a Hogan-endorsed candidate. And the Trump-endorsed candidate is close. Um, so it's not it's not a, you know, fait accompli that Larry's coattails are going to translate in a big way for the Republican candidate in the primary. Now, you know, we'll see how that plays out ultimately because, you know, Charlie, it's all about turnout. Well, um, well, on yeah. the Democratic side, it's a hot mess. <laughs> You've got three top contenders. Um, the comptroller, Peter Francho, uh, former secretary of labor, uh, Tom Perez, and uh, Wes Moore, who is part of the nonprofit community, wealthy uh, business guy, African-American. So it's it's going to be fun. Well, it, it, some of these primaries have turned into, of course, you know, proxy fights. And, and my newsletter today raises the question, are we seeing a little bit of, uh, of Trump fatigue? Big question mark there because. Yes, read that. Yep, we've been through this before. But down in Arizona, I think it's kind of interesting where you have Mike Pence uh, intervening down there, uh, Doug Ducey, the governor, endorsing the non-Trump candidate here in Wisconsin. Uh, Former Governor Scott Walker is pushing back against the Trump-endorsed candidate. So it's going to be interesting to see how these these primaries play out. I think the Arizona one now has become sort of moved to the top of the list of like, okay, now we're going to see... You know how the the crazification of the GOP is going to progress because Carrie Lake, who is the Trump endorsed candidate, I mean, she is on the uh, the far reaches of uh, of nutsoid world. And, yes, um, you know, and and it has been the front runner, and now the the what's left of the GOP establishment seems to be lining up against her. But again, what's left of it? I mean, like Chris, Chris. Well, and 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 you know, it depends on what that GOP establishment does in um, concert with the endorsements um, that uh, are for the non-Trump candidate, and and how they are able to get the ground game in place to turn out those extra Republicans who typically don't vote in primaries. People, you know, people need to understand. Our primary system sucks. It is the quintessential reason for a lot of the flaws that we see because it plays to the lowest common denominator. It's all about absolute base turnout. It is not about turning up voters. Um, And so you have in both Democrat and Republican primaries, Charlie, uh, as you know, in your years of covering these elections, a significant proportion of people who do not show up. Who do not vote. You're talking 20% turnout, you know, 15% turnout in some cases. If you hit, if you're hitting 25, 30% turnout in a in a primary, Democrat or Republican, oh my God, that's like a massive turnout of voters. And so you're still talking about anywhere between 70 and 80% of voters who don't participate in those primaries. And the result is 
you get these bat, you know what, crazy, I love you, what you say, yeah. crazification. I love the crazification <laughs> of, new word for me, crazification of, of the primary process and ultimately the parties. And, and to your broader point is why the Republican establishment is such that it still exists is now scrambling to push back against a number of these candidates because they've seen already the reality that they've made races more competitive that they would clearly win in this cycle, which is why I'm on the record saying I think the Democrats have a real chance of holding the House. Um, A lot of people think think I'm smoking something and whatever it is, trust me, it's good um, if I'm saying that. So, But I, I really believe that to your point about crazification of the party in the in in the nominees that is putting forward the impact of this uh, January 6th committee uh, work which has been profoundly important which the republicans underestimated and thought that they could just you know crap all over and they couldn't the supreme court's decisions all of that is putting on the scale against inflation, the economy, and the other things that you'll probably want to talk about that are driving some of the CNN polling and other polls. But those polls are not an indication necessarily how people ultimately are going to vote. They're just telling you how they feel. Hmm. And I think people are making a very interesting bifurcation from how I feel relative to how I'm going to vote. Uh, and I think that's that's what I'm watching over the next four months going into November. OK, so let's pivot to this January 6th committee and the impact that it might have and, and preview what's going to happen on Thursday. Uh, Bloomberg is reporting that the panel is extending the inquiry because information keeps coming. They had planned to finish up by September. Instead, they're going to keep operating beyond that because of. Uh, I don't know. The the dam is breaking. I don't know. Uh, this is what uh, Benny Thompson said uh, l- last night. And uh, so the w- what they had anticipated to be a final report in September is now going to be a scaled back interim report. Apparently, the only drop dead date is January 3rd, 2023, if Republicans yep. you know take over the House. Uh, we're also hearing the former Trump National Security Council official, Matthew Pottinger, yep. is going to be testifying at Thursday's hearing. Representative Adam Kinzinger, who's going to be one of the lead questioners on Thursday, uh, previewed what to expect from Thursday's hearing. Here's uh, Adam Kinzinger on Sunday morning. So 187 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, you're leading this hearing. You, you know what you can present mm-hmm. at this point. Can you at least tell us if you filled in the blanks of, you know, who the president was actually speaking with, why there weren't phone records, for example, of, of phone calls he may have placed during that time period? We have filled in the blanks. Uh, I can't necessarily say that the motives behind every piece of information we know will be able to explain, but this is going to open people's eyes in a big way. The reality is, I'll give you this preview, the president didn't do very much, but Mm -hmm. gleefully watch television during this time frame. Uh, We're going to present a lot more than that. But I could only imagine as, I mean, I knew what I felt like as a U.S. congressman. If I was a president sworn to defend the Constitution, that includes the legislative branch, watching this on television, I know I would have been going ballistic to try to save the Capitol. He did quite the opposite. The president didn't do anything? The president didn't do anything, and we're going to fill those blanks in. And if the American people watch this, particularly I say this to my fellow Republicans, watch this with an open mind, and is this the kind of strong leader you really think you deserve? 
Okay, so Michael Steele, what do you expect? I'm intrigued by this filling in the blanks since the entire day is, for Donald Trump, a blank. So how do you fill in the blank? And he did nothing, and then like an hour later, he also was doing- Well, that, that, that is the ultimate <laughs> filling. Yeah. The guy sat there and did nothing. He watched TV, he, he put certain things, he rewound certain parts of the live story that he was watching, and so he could replay, you know, watching crowds beat up Capitol Hill police. Um, That's what the president did. And I think that narrative is going to be important to unfold in great detail. If they had the time, I would actually just sit there and say, folks, we're going to take the next 187 minutes and do nothing, because Mm -hmm. that's exactly what Donald Trump did. So I, I think Adam has sort of set this up perfectly for a continuation of a narrative that now focuses more on the president's direct action on that day. We've gotten the tweets from the president. We've gotten what other people uh, who were in the room have said, people who were out in the field, what they have said. Now we'll get to see what the president did in response to all of this. Uh, And I think that's going to be important. I want to step back to your your lead-in point, which I think is excruciatingly important. I am so glad to know that this committee is not suspending its work, is not ending its work uh, in July or August. I think they go right through. I think that you you w- operate on the assumption, yes, that you could not be in power come January 3rd, but you very well may be in power come January 3rd. And so you pursue the work in front of you. And I think that's going to be important for November. And here's why, going back to the point, these, these hearings have had an enormously important impact for voters um, and for citizens who've been watching and following this. And I think in addition to Trump, what this now puts in front of uh, the American people is this is the Republican Party who told you now that you've seen in, in raw relief what happened on the 4th and the 5th and the 6th of January, that this was not just some political exercise, that this was not some tourist group coming to the Capitol. This was not an ordinary rally for support of the president. This was an outright coup. And for those Republicans who stood in the well and condemned it then, on January 7th and 8th and subsequent weeks, now sitting back saying that this is legitimate political discourse. Were they lying then or are they lying now? That's the question that the American people need an answer to. And of course, one of the most interesting questions is what difference does it make that it's in prime time? This will be on all networks. Uh, apparently, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS have juggled their schedule. Uh, all the cable channels are going to be carrying it. Probably only Fox News will be an outlier. That Look, I don't, don't think you need a PhD in politics to understand that that's a big deal because it will expose this to people who have not been following it the way that you and I have been following it. I mean, you know, we have been marinating in this and talking about this and writing about this for a year and a half. Uh, it's going to be new to millions of Americans. Now, again, it's the middle of summer. You know, hardcore MAGA types will not be watching. But here's another just intriguing possible bit of fallout. Uh, my colleague uh, Sarah Longwell tweeted, I'm sure you saw this. She just had another focus group of Trump voters. These are Trump supporters. Mm-hmm where zero 
wanted Trump to run again in 2024, really a striking departure from dozens and dozens of focus groups pre-January 6th hearings, when at least half of any Trump voting group wanted him to run again, his support is noticeably softer. And she says, look, again, I don't think it's these voters are being persuaded by the hearings exactly. They, they still think it's a witch hunt, but it's a reminder to them of how much baggage Trump has. And they, they want someone who can win in 2024, and they are increasingly unsure he can. So well, the, this does seem to be softening up his support within his own base, which is something that I guess I did not fully anticipate before these hearings. I, yeah, I, I'm still not convinced of it. I, I, I think what the, the missing ingredient in all of this is Donald Trump. Donald Trump has not been an active political player. He's been an occasional political player. Well, he'll do a rally here or he may put out something there. But he has not been a constant presence um, on the political landscape yet. And so what I want to see is when he is, when he decides to engage uh, in the political process, then, then show me that where those voters are. Show me where those supporters are. Do they still remain soft when he is every day rallying the lie and rallying people around the lie? And do they then consider that lie baggage and, and that that is a problem for them? I'm not convinced that they do. Yeah. And the reason I'm not convinced that they do is that they still support in large measure the candidates that he's getting out there and behind. And maybe there's some bifurcation of people going, well, candidate X is not Trump, and I, you know, but Trump supports candidate X, and that's okay. There may be some rationalizations there. But I'm, not, I'm just waiting to see when Trump decides to reengage the media and the political process, how those voters feel. And, and, if, and if you come back and show me that zero want him to be on uh, the ticket in 24, yeah. then yes, he's got a problem. But I'm not convinced he does just yet. It also matters whether, you know, what the choices that voters are facing. And um, it, it does come, I was thinking about this over the weekend, you know, with all the speculation about Ron DeSantis, you look at the numbers and, you know, they obviously DeSantis's stock has been rising in Republican circles, but will he run? Because if he doesn't run, there's no obvious, easy alternative for, for Trump world to, to shift over. So what do you think? I mean, look, we're engaging in rank speculation here. Right. Uh, well, if he doesn't run, speaking of rank, you've got Ted Cruz. So then you'll have Cruz who's already trying to, you know, position his, I'm like Trump, street cred. So, yeah, I, I think that, there, you know, politics, like everything else, abhors a vacuum. Something will fill it. And whoever that something is on the Trump side of the equation, they'll fill it. Um, the question becomes, on the other side, what is the lane that's created with or without Trump by Republicans who want to pull the party off of a clip that it is clearly already free falling from um, and and try to try to, you know, create some level of soft landing in the gully below. But. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know if that lane is going to be able to be created with Trump. Certainly, I think it's a possibility without him. And I'm not convinced he runs. A lot of people are. I think a lot of this. You're not convinced who runs? Trump. I'm not. Really? Convinced. Yeah, I'm not convinced he runs. 
Really? Two reasons. Two very important reasons to me, knowing the man as I do. One, uh, he doesn't want to do the work. Two, he doesn't want to lose. And 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 that that prospect of losing um, weighs a lot heavier for him. Oh, I think that's huge. I I, I would put that number one. And look, I. I in my newsletter, I mentioned I don't know the the pollsters, so lots of caveats all around this. But uh, there have you know been two polls out of Florida, which is of course Ron DeSantis' home state. So I mean you know take that for what it's worth, showing DeSantis beating Trump in a Republican primary sixty one thirty nine. Now again that may be an outlier, but remember this is a state where Donald Trump thumped Marco Rubio, and and again you do wonder um, whether or not Trump looks at that and goes, geez, you know, this guy gets in. I mean, the worst, from Donald Trump's point of view, the worst thing in the world would be to lose a primary, to to run and not win the nomination. Here's a question, Michael, because I'm sure you've thought about this. Well, one thing we know about Donald Trump is he never loses, right? He's only betrayed. Right. Can you imagine what a disaster it would be for the Republican Party for him to run and then lose because he would then obviously lash out and accuse his fellow Republicans of stealing the race and cheating. Of course him, right? he would. Of, of course, course he would. would. Of course he would. <laughs> of course he would. And, and in fact, I think that the reality for a lot of Republicans, which is why they're trying like hell to keep him away from this primary process as much as they possibly can, is the fact that Trump looks at DeSantis and, and has been known to say, well, I created him. Yeah talk about betrayal. He sees that as betrayal. And then there's all, you know, you hear the sort of benign language from Trump about uh, DeSantis, meaning, oh, I like him. Okay, yeah, sure you do. But the reality of it is he's got not one but two eyes on him uh, and is very much aware that his problem lies within the party. And again, that's what I'm talking about the engagement, when he engages, when he decides to, to pull that trigger, how he does that will set up how, how this whole thing is going to play itself out. Now, whether he runs, Charlie, as, you, as you've reported and, and talked about, because he wants to uh, <laughs> avoid prosecution. <laughs> and irrelevancy. And irrelevancy. <laughs> you know, well, this is the way to do it. <laughs> That's right. I mean, you know, he 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 knows what happens the moment he announces that he he is not running. Okay, so you 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 mentioned the name Ted Cruz, which is usually not relevant, um, except I, I I think one of the things that's been happening is watching the Republicans have this bidding war for how extreme they're going to be and what they will do. You know, for example, Roe versus Wade is overturned. Right. People say, well, we're returning it to the states. And immediately, I think five minutes later, they're going, well, no, we don't want to return it to the states. We want a nationwide a federal ban. You know, <laughs> and Clarence Thomas is out there going, wait, 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 we're over. That's not enough. We need to overturn all the rulings involving contraception and uh, gay marriage. And over the weekend, Ted Cruz said something very interesting. I, I want to play this not necessarily because, you know, Ted Cruz is this great power, but because I think he reflects something that is out there and people need to have this on their radar screen. So this is Ted Cruz talking about the Supreme Court decision that legalized gay marriage. Obergefell, like Roe versus Wade, ignored two centuries of our nation's history. Marriage was always an issue that was left to the states. In Obergefell, the court said, no, we know better than you guys do. And now every state must must sanction and and permit gay marriage. Um, I think that decision was clearly wrong when it was decided. Um, It was the court overreaching. 
Okay, so Michael, I think one of the most important things to realize is that if you follow the logic of the Dobbs decision, does anyone actually think that Samuel Lito or Clarence Thomas would not tomorrow vote to overturn Obergefell? They absolutely would. Not only Obergefell, but Lawrence, which was about uh, same-sex relations, uh, and, and of course, Griswold. Um, which was the contraception, uh, contraceptive decision uh, that which formed the basis of a right to privacy, which I've always argued, uh, going back to my very, very young days um, in law school, which always got me in so much trouble at Georgetown, um, was that if if you over ever overturned Roe versus Wade, you have to t- overturn yeah. um, uh, Griswold because. It's based off of a right to privacy analysis. Um, and we can talk about the right or wrongness of it. I always thought, um, you know, both decisions were wrongly decided by virtue of the fact that you create this right to privacy that doesn't exist, mm-hmm. uh, was not a part of the two centuries of our nation's history. But using Ted Cruz's logic, um, yes, those, those cases should fall, as should uh, the case for interracial marriage. Uh, so I found it very amusing um, that Justice Thomas didn't reference that particular uh, Virginia case um, because uh, he's married to a white woman. So um, if you want to if you want to have this this two centuries worth of our nation's history argument as the basis for uh, a lot of things, then y'all need to strap in because America is going to look a lot different if that analysis holds up. And you saw the retreat almost immediately when people applied their logic to Brown versus Board of Education, Mm -hmm. all right? Which goes against two centuries of our nation's history, which was not about educating black folks, all right? So, you know, this this is such a BS. This is where this is where I just want to take Cruz in a room and just smack the crap out of him because he knows better. All this high-powered intellect that he supposedly has, he clearly is, you know, using it at the wrong end. And, and the problem is it logically doesn't hold up. So just state you, you don't agree with gay marriage, all right? And your United States Senate proposed a piece of legislation that, that changes that, you know? But the reality of it is he, does, he wants the court to do his work um, for him, and then they can sit back on their little hobby horse and, you know, yuck it up and, and pretend like they're in line with where the country wants to go. Well, OK, you, you say it doesn't logically work, but actually it does in terms of the logic, which is that if you say there's no right to privacy, if that if your standard is that there are no rights unless they are deeply embedded in American history, then he's he's got a point. And this is why it's dangerous. Right. Because if you follow that iron logic to overturn Dobbs, then the, and I think that the language that Alito used in that opinion is almost word for word the language he used in his dissent on Obergefell. So this is where the right is going. They are going to, you know, follow this line. It's it's like watching, you know, someone has lit a fuse and just watching where that fuse is is going to go. And the same thing is on the, the question of abortion. I know you talked about this. Uh, it, the, the the pivot, which was incredible from uh, this should be a matter for states to let's have a nationwide ban on on, on on abortion. I think this is part of that bidding war for purity that you're going to see among Republicans, right? That if you are for 
If you're if you're not for a nationwide ban, you're a rhino. Or if you're a nation if, if you're for a nationwide ban and it's only 15 weeks, then you're a rhino. And they're going to continue to you know push that line. So I don't think they're going to be able to help themselves from overreaching on all of these cultural issues. Well, I just find these fools creating a world for themselves in which they're going to have to confront one day their white daughter getting married to a a minority male who then has their their 12-year-old grandchild uh, raped, and then what do they do? So there was once a time when crazy was considered disqualifying in in American politics. And there have been times when uh, Republicans lost control of the Senate or lost their bid to control the Senate because they had people who said weird things about witches or said things about legitimate rape. Um, 2022 is going to be a test about whether or not crazy is disqualifying. Okay, so, Michael, speaking of strapping in. (laughs) Um, I I don't think it's breaking news that Herschel Walker is uh, kind of out there, but the Republican Accountability Project posted this video of him giving a pep talk. Now, I I don't even know where to begin with this, except to say that he starts off by claiming that he's a former FBI agent. He's not. And then talking about getting in a car. I mean, I'm going to play it because so you know I'm not exaggerating where then he he goes on to tell this unhinged story about angrily grabbing a gun, uh, intending to kill somebody and hearing voices in his head telling him he needs to do it for vengeance. This is the Republican candidate for United States Senate in a pivotal state. So here's Herschel Walker. I work for the poor law enforcement. Y'all didn't know that either, did you? I spent time at Quantico at the FBI training schools. Y'all didn't know I was an agent. I probably shouldn't tell y'all that. Y'all don't care. But anyway, yeah, I've been in law enforcement for it. So I grabbed my gun. I said, I will kill him. Herschel Walker, one of the high control, I'm going to kill him. I got in David, one of my many. I took off on 183. And I still remember the voice of Herschel. People have been disrespecting you all the time. People are always doing stuff to you. You never done nothing to nobody. And all of a sudden, this other voice of Herschel, your parents and raised you. Like, You're sick to you. No, they didn't. Yes, they did. I thought I was losing my mind. As I got closer and closer to where I was going to be meeting this guy, I started to pray. I said, Lord, uh, I need some help right now. I said, I need you to help me. I said, I'm about to do something stupid right now. I need you to help me right now. I remember getting to this where I was going to meet him at. I got out of my car and I put my hand on my gun. As I was walking to this truck, before I could see the guy, I saw the sign on the back of his truck that said, Hunk, if you love Jesus. And that's what calmed me down. Okay, so there's an upbeat ending there, and I'm glad that Herschel is dealing with his demons. I personally think that perhaps you ought to deal with that someplace else other than the United States freaking Senate. But your thoughts, Michael Steele? Uh, CTE is a real thing. That's all I can say. Uh, uh, I don't understand where the party thinks that this ends well. And the reality of it is... I know the cynicism behind this, and it's sad. And, you know, look, when I was chairman, the worst thing I had to deal with was a candidate in Delaware who had to go out and prove she wasn't a witch. All right. So, mm-hmm. um, fun so, times. Yeah, fun times, right? I just remember sitting down saying, you know what? We're not talking about witchcraft and witches anymore. Okay. We're just, <laughs> you're not doing that. And she was like, okay. And we never did. That's not, this situation here. And 
it is amazing to me that people think this man should be sitting in the United States Senate making life and death decisions that impact American families and individuals, that impact our economy, that impact our, our role in the world when this is the kind of conversation he's having. And no, he was not in law enforcement. Uh, no, no. Yes, you have, you have children that you, that you lied to your own staff about not having. Your honor and your credibility still should matter, and it doesn't. And doesn't the only thing Republicans are looking at is we got a black man running for the United States Senate against uh, Raphael Warnock. And he's a celebrity. And, and he's, he's a famous celebrity. And he's a celebrity and all that. Yep. So here's the other weird thing that's been happening, of course, is that Republicans, I want to get your thoughts on this, Democrats playing around in Republican primaries to boost the craziest candidate because they think they're easier to beat. And, um, you know, I, I personally think that that's worse than a blunder, uh, especially if some of these people get elected. And in Pennsylvania, we had the story in Politico about uh, the about Doug Mastriano, who is the I want to say insane, but I mean, just, I mean, really Carrie Lake level, just batshit crazy. He's dangerous. He's dangerous. Well, and the, the, the political story is this MAGA long shot is becoming a contender in Pennsylvania. You know, again, thanks to Democrats helping him get that nomination. I don't know whether, and, and Republicans are coalescing around this guy, Mastriano, despite all of his shortcomings. And, and there's a quote there, you know, you know, somebody saying, you know, most people are in a little bubble. And when they talk to one another, they say, boy, there's no way that Doug Mastriano can ever be elected governor of Pennsylvania. There's no way that Doug Mastriano, this 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 batshit crazy guy can beat Democrat Josh Shapiro. Well, you know what? Those people don't get off the turnpike. Right. So two things happening. One, Democrats, be careful what you wish for. And Republicans, once again, proving that they will coalesce around pretty much anything and anybody these days. Well, and, and I think to that point, Republicans are always not about governing, but about power. They don't they don't care about the governing impact that Mastriano is going to have on the state of Pennsylvania. What they care about is that they can claim they've got a governor in place mm-hmm. going into 2024, who, as Mastriano has already made clear, will help throw the election to the Republican regardless of the outcome. That's what they care about. That is oh, the culmination yeah. of the power grab. Um, and so these candidates represent that in real in a real way for them. For Republicans in the state, you have a, a, a growing and significant group of Republicans who are backing uh, the Democratic candidate. The Democrats played a cynical game. They did a little bit of that here in Maryland, throwing money into the Republican primary towards the Trump uh, backed candidate to try to get that individual a little bit more power. It did have an impact. The the numbers uh, for this candidate are very, very competitive to the point where it's close. Um, and so, um, but they uh, Democrats can afford to do that in a state like Maryland, yeah. where they're uh, where they outnumber Republicans two to one in registration. It becomes a little bit more hanky in places like Pennsylvania where you are on any given day a purple state. You have a pretty even divide between Republicans, Democrats, and independents. So it's it's a very dangerous, to your point, very dangerous game to play politically, particularly when the party decides, all right, uh, screw it, we're going to coalesce behind this guy um, and we're, we're going to go for the governorship because of what that means for longer-term ambitions. So one, one, one last question. Um, 
I, I, by the way, spent the weekend in Maryland, and uh, when I was uh, flying back uh, from 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 DC back to the, the the Midwest, I was watching some of the cable coverage uh, because you can do that on airplanes, which is amazing. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it is amazing. I was watching, uh, unfortunately, for my blood pressure, uh, the press conference out of Ovalde, where the the House uh, report was being released about uh, the just the incredible series of foobars there, the fact that there were nearly 400 heavily armed police officers who waited out in the hallway for 77 minutes. And I, I just, it is so enraging. I just, I don't know how people who lost loved ones don't lose their minds, quite frankly. I mean, I often, you know, say, you know, people need to keep their heads, but I don't know how they don't lose their minds. And the House report is very, very good, very, very comprehensive. I thought they were very professional in presenting the evidence about all of the things that didn't happen, all the warning signs right. that were ignored, the doors were unlocked, uh, all of the things that that happened, uh, the lack of, of command and control. But I was struck by the fact that they kept using the phrase systemic failure, systemic failure over and over and over again. And it struck me that that was a euphemism, that it's one of these jargony bureaucratic phrases that say that, well, the system failed. But sometimes, Michael, the system it's not the system. It's the individuals in the system. It's individuals who were cowardly, who were stupid, who were incompetent, who made decisions. And there's something sort of distancing about it, like sort of like it's if it's the system, then it's not any individual's fault. So you know what I'm saying? It's a there's something. And also, I think words like systemic are words that actually no one really knows what they mean. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It, it sort, of, yeah. sort, of, it sort yeah. of bureaucratizes like, no, this guy fucked up big time. This right. guy, this guy over here, this guy over here was standing here with his, you know what in his hand and he didn't do anything about it. That's not the system. That's these guys. So is that unfair? I mean, I, I know it's not, it's all the thing just, just enraging. It, it, it does enrage you. Uh, I don't think that's an unfair uh, analysis of it. I think it does cut to uh, the core of the issue. What I found very compelling was the fact that you had 390-some, let's round it up to 400 law enforcement, state, federal, and local uh, personnel on the ground, as people like to say, more people, more law enforcement in, at that at that elementary school than fought uh, at uh, the Alamo, right? Oh, and 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 so the systemic failure is the command control operation that the commanders had no control over the situation because they did not know what to do. That's when they talk about not following the the procedures that are that they've been trained to follow in this in this type of a situation those officers aren't moving unless their commanders tell them where to move to how to move when to move so you've got you've got you know leaders so start debating amongst themselves what is the right thing to do um, and it, it is a black eye on law enforcement, unfortunately, in the whole, because you had 400 law enforcement officials standing there while 19 children were being and, slaughtered. And two teachers. And two teachers. Um, so you're absolutely right in that analysis. And this, and this rests squarely on anyone who had a level of command and control on that day. Um, and, and, and the rank and file officers who showed up to do their job to save those kids were stymied in that pursuit. 
were stymied in that opportunity because their leaders didn't know, as you, I love the visual, stood there with their pecker in their hands trying to figure out what to do with it. Well, and the contrast between what happened in Indiana, where you had uh, this mall shooter, this guy shows up with three guns and 100 rounds of ammunition, and a guy, a 22-year-old guy with uh, with with a weapon, a con- legal concealed carry permit, but no no background in the military, no background in law enforcement, no body armor. He didn't have an AK. He didn't have an AR-15. Uh, he took out the the shooter um, and saved God knows how many lives. So the sort of the contrast between this civilian who courageously, you know, stepped up and saved all these people versus the nearly 400, you know, heavily armed, body armored police officers who stood around for 77 minutes. So also just a reminder of the, the, the there's a rather significant gap between all of the, you know, the cosplay and the dressing up uh, and, you know, and, you know, posing for pictures, you know, carrying your big gun and then actually doing something about it. I think sometimes we forget that congressmen that post videos of, you know, come and take my gun away from right. me. That's not exactly heroism. That's that's sending out dick pics of yourself with a gun. Right. <laughs> So on that high level okay. note, can I can, before we go, can I just I want to just address one thing you said though at the end there because I, I I have a slightly different feeling or view about it. I do applaud the young man who took out the shooter in the mall. I, I get it and I understand it, but I, I really do not want to make an equivalency between that individual and our law enforcement officials. I think we're setting ourselves up. For a major problem, I, I would I would dare say that end of that one individual is an outlier. Is not what we should expect in these situations going forward. Fair point. And I think that was just a matter of the right moment, right time, circumstance that allowed that to happen, because uh, that could have been a far worse outcome. Trying to take out that shooter and at the same time taking out other civilians. Um, so I, I just think you know the fact that we're arming people and making it easier for them to conceal carry and and so forth we are on the precipice of something that i think could be a lot more dangerous even in that that wild wild west which everyone likes to idealize and and talk about you know it was not as wild as you think because guns were not permitted in saloons (laughs) wisely no, here's a fair point. I certainly don't want to come off as endorsing some kind of, you know, vigilante culture where everybody is walking around with a gun because, of course, that is very, very dangerous. Michael Steele, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming back on the Bulwark podcast. We always enjoy having you. No, I love it, brother. It was great to be with you as always, Charlie. The Bulwark podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.